Good morning, good afternoon, wherever you are in the world. This is Talking Impact, brought to you by the Institute for Social Innovation and Impact at the University of Northampton. My name is Richard Hazenberg, and in each podcast, I'm joined by a leading social entrepreneur to discuss their life, work, and a current affairs issue of the day. This week, I'm joined by Paul Buck, CEO of Epic Risk Management. Welcome, Paul. How thank are you? you? Good afternoon, really good, thank you. Good, good, good stuff. Um, look, I mean, we want to get and talk to you about what it is that you do in Epic, but um, first of all, we always ask our guests when they, when they first come on the show to define what they see as social innovation and social entrepreneurship. So perhaps you could just talk us through your perceptions of what social innovation uh, and social enterprise is. Okay. So, so from my perspective, when I, when I was thinking of doing a social enterprise, it wasn't, you know, in my head, I'm starting a social enterprise. It was just that the particular topic of work that I was going into is, is one of the biggest social problems that there is in the UK. Um, so, so I think I sort of naturally became came from a very commercial background with Santander and, and banking, as you, you'll hear in a few minutes, uh, through to tackling a social issue. So I think for me, social entrepreneurship is is is, is showing innovation, is is creating ideas and building businesses and ideas that tackle the major social issues in, in the UK and, and globally. You sort of touched on there that the biggest social problem that your company works in is, is gambling. So perhaps you could tell us a little bit about what Epic Risk Management does around, you know, in relation to the gambling sector and gambling problems in society. Okay, so 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 I think gambling is almost a hidden addiction. So what we do know now and evidence and stats prove is that gambling is the fastest growing addiction both in the UK and globally. Um, it's got the highest levels of bankruptcy, as you would probably expect with the, the financial element. It's got the highest levels of suicide, relationship breakdown and relapse. It's also the fastest growing reason that people are being convicted and going to prison. So it's quite a big issue, you know. Most people can stay in control, um, others can't. And, and I think it's that number of people who can't that is rising, which is what is making it a, a big issue. And as the, the first sort of tech-savvy generation comes through now, um, we are seeing a really, really big rise in the amount of people suffering gambling-related harm. Um, what Epic do, Epic try and stop people getting to the edge of the cliff. So. If you fall off the edge of a cliff with this addiction, you usually end up in a pretty rock bottom place. Um, and you're usually in one of four sort of places. So you would be bankrupt or have no money. Uh, you would have a relationship breakdown or divorced. Um, you would end up with a criminal conviction or in prison, or you would end up feeling suicidal or dead. And that's how brutal it is. And that's how we deal with, you know, that's what we're dealing with day in, day out in a in really high prevalent sector. So what, what became very evident to me about four years ago is that there's nothing in this country, or there was nothing in this country, stopping people getting to the edge of a cliff in the first place. So if you did fall off that cliff, you could go to GamCare or Gordon Moody House or a very expensive private clinic, and you could get treatment to try and bring you back up into um, into the real world, if you like, or, or back to some kind of normality. Um, you know, there's people that help with bankruptcies, there's people that help with insolvencies and different organisations, but there was nobody trying to stop people getting people stop stop people getting to the edge of that cliff in the first place. Uh, and that was very much my my vision for Epic as a social entre- uh, social enterprise, and it remains remains true to this day that that's that's our USP, if you like, that we stop people getting to the edge of the cliff. So it's very, it's very much an early intervention sort of preventative strategy then um, for dealing with well potential gambling addicts or early stage gambling addicts. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Epic Epic is 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 not just a sort of glorification of our business. It's it's uh, education, prevention, identification, and control, and they're the four aspects of our business. So we want to stop people getting. We, we we want to educate people. We want them to help them 
make better decisions or more informed decisions around gambling rather than just being sucked in by gambling advertisements and free bet offers and, 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 and things like that. And, you know, we want to help. It's not just with individuals. We, we work a lot with organisations and businesses and workplaces just purely because we've got a bigger spread that way. We, we, can, we can affect more people's lives doing it that way. Um, and yeah, it's very much a case of, of let's make sure there's a policy and, and procedure in place to make sure that, that, that the organisations understand what to do, what a fit for purpose pathway of support looks like, how to deal with an individual who they do suffer. And that in turn protects them as well as an organisation uh, from, from fraud and theft and everything that goes with it. Let's touch on some of those businesses and organisations that you work with. And, you know, we, we both like our sport, so it's always been interesting to me to, to, to know you and work with you in this respect. Um, but I know you're involved in rugby and cricket and football, so I mean, perhaps you could talk through the spread of organisations and not just in sport, but that, that you work with as a consultancy. Yeah, so, so, so when, when we set this up in 2013, it was a case of, of, of where do you go and work? I mean, gambling is such a wide issue. It, it doesn't just affect professional sports people or doesn't just affect people in the army or anything like that it can affect anybody at any any time I mean only this week there's been a priest who's been convicted for, for a lot of so you know it, it really is uh, non-discriminative as, as far as an addiction goes um, but when I was setting this up I was thinking well, well where do we go and work and the obvious place to go and work was is to go where gambling harm is most prevalent and that is really across five sectors. We originally thought four, but, but a fifth one to come in, as I'll explain just now. So by far and away, the most prevalent sector for problematic gambling and gambling-related harm is the financial services industry. So it's probably not a surprise to most people is access to money. There's a very competitive um, mentality amongst, amongst uh, that kind of sector. Um, and more than a quarter of, of problematic gamblers in the UK probably come from that sector, for, as far as evidence uh, shows. Um, the others um, are professional sport, um, and within professional sport, you, you're quite right, we work uh, really extensively across that now. So we work with each of either Premiership Club, we work with England Rugby, uh, England Women's Rugby, uh, we work with every professional cricket county and England Cricket, uh, we work with Professional Jockeys Association, uh, we work with uh, Rugby Players Ireland, so the four big provinces over in Ireland, um, and we also work with a number of football teams. And I think what's probably interesting here is, 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 is two big parts of the work that, that we, we like to do with Epic is to raise awareness and decrease stigma across this. It's still seen as a sort of dirty word or a dirty topic to address and you know I can sit here now and tell you quite, quite openly but we work with uh, Chelsea Football Club. We've got a three year contract with them to work from under 14s right through to the first team and they are very happy for us to talk about that and say yeah you know it's an issue that we've had and you know, we're more than happy for you to, to sort of tell people we're, we're dealing with that issue and, and have dealt with that issue. We work with six other premiership clubs who do not, will not allow me to talk about it. We first thing they ask us to sign is a confidentiality agreement. Um, and that for me is still stigma. So we're happy to work with them and obviously we're helping their, their teams, etc. But but they wouldn't be happy at all if they heard me talking about it. And I think a lot of that has to do with sponsorship and the fact that their sponsors are gambling companies and, 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 and spreading it around from there. So pro sports definitely one of the sectors. We also work within the armed forces. So we work across the Royal Navy, the, the Royal Air Force and the British Army. Uh, in, the last, um, in the last year, we've seen over 1,200 soldiers with the idea of making sure again that they have a, a, a person hear a personal story they're given some education and are allowed to make more informed decisions so for a professional sports person you know you don't really want them to be distracted because they might drop a catch or they might miss a kick or or, or something like that with the army it's a totally different ball game in that in that you know if they're distracted then potentially their lives are at risk 
you know, and, 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 the, and the nation's security is at risk. So it's quite, um, it, it's quite grown up stuff, really, as far as that's concerned. Um, we also work across the criminal justice system. So, um, as I said, we uh, we are working on a two-year contract, two-year tender contract with Gamble Aware, um, in terms of working with with Sodexo prisons. So we're working at Peterborough, where I've just come from now, uh, Forest Bank in Salford, Adiwell in Scotland, uh, Northumbria. Um, and potentially Bronzefield down in Middlesex, which is an all-women's jail as well. So we work with offenders, we work with prison officers, we work with probation officers, and we work, we work with the families of those affected as well. So they were our four initial sectors that we wanted to work with. One that's evolved quite naturally since is education. So what we do know now is that there's 500,000 11 to 15-year-olds gambling every week, and we know that 169,000 of them suffer gambling-related harm every week. So that, for me, as a, as, a, as, a, as a social innovator, if you like, as, 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 as looking at a much wider picture than just business, um, struck massive alarm bells when those figures came out. Uh, because what we've potentially got is a ticking time bomb. If you've got our first tech-savvy generation coming through and half a million 15-year-olds and below are already gambling of some sort, then what is that going to look like when they start earning money, when they reach proper gambling age? They're going to go through that invisible line into problem gambling much quicker and you are gonna get all the gambling-related harm that, that inevitably comes off the back of that. So we've now got those five sectors where we, where we concentrate. I know you were talking about the stigma, and I think the stigma is a really interesting area as well. Um, you know, any organization would probably have a HR policy around drug addiction or alcohol addiction, um, but it doesn't seem to be the case that they do around gambling addiction. No, well, and it's a big part of what we do. So, so within financial services, um, the main driver of people working with us is around brand and reputation and, and, and financial losses, whereas the human risk is, is very much with the other four. You know, it's around around make, helping them make informed decisions. Um, we we have still failed to find a single company, and we're talking some big companies as well, who've got a fit for purpose gambling at work policy. You're right, over 97% of organisations have got a, an alcohol or drugs policy at work. So if you, and we've done this with HR managers, you phone up an employee assistance programme or you phone up some senior HR teams and ask them to tell them what their drug policy is or their alcohol policy, they will be able to rattle it off, you know, literally word for word and so on. You ask them what the gambling policy is and they'll either eventually admit they haven't got one or they'll say, well, we just do a similar thing to what we do with alcohol or, you know, you know and, and so on. And so, so I think it is a real shortfall. In fact, the only companies you generally find who have got now a good gambling at work policy will be people who have been affected by a serious gambling incident and got an organisation such as Epic in to actually have a look at it for them. And, 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 but often it's when the horse has bolted and it's, there's, there's been some, some, some gambling-related harm off the back of it. Okay, I mean... We, we, we've un we understand now what it is that Epic does, um, but perhaps let's just explore your life journey to be, you know, to becoming the CEO and founder of Epic. You know, uh, you talked earlier about you identified a, a social issue you wanted to tackle, and therefore becoming an entrepreneur and an innovator around it was a logical extension. Um, but perhaps you could just tell us a little bit more about about the process behind that. Yeah, no, no worries at all. So, so, so basically, a, a very long story short. Um, first 18 years of my life, I didn't gamble at all. Now, gambling was a very, very different um, animal in those days. I mean, I'm, I'm 41 now. So in those days, the only way you could gamble would be to go into a bookie shop between 9 o'clock in the morning and 5 o'clock at night, get a little pen, uh, write out a slip, 
and you could gamble up really on the football pools, on horse racing or on greyhound racing. And that was it. There was no in-play betting. There was no cash in, cash out. There were no 143 markets on every football match or anything like that. It was just totally different. And, uh, you know, I had no interest in it. I was very competitive. I grew up playing cricket. I grew up playing football, etc. But I had no interest in, in what you would class as a gambling-related sport. I then went to university at the age of 18. Uh, went to Leeds University. Um, worked um, worked out for the for the for the football team and got picked in a squad of 16 in the first week and what what struck me very very early on was of the 16 in the squad I was the only one who wasn't a big gambler so all the other 15 ever really spoke about you know I, I was thinking there'd be a lot of chats maybe about girls or about about alcohol or, or whatever but really it was a very 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 concentrated betting culture even from day one um, and I lasted four days before I entered a, a little William Hill in Horsworth in Leeds, just near Headingley, and, um, and, and, and you know, went in and placed my first bet, and I hadn't got a clue what to do. Um, and it was literally a case where I was just looking at what everybody else was doing. Obviously, the next race was up. Uh, everyone seems to be betting £10 each way, which I didn't even realise meant that you had to give them £20. I thought it was just 10 uh, And I picked a horse called Liz Nicargill Girl, uh, purely because I'm a Preston North End fan and they're running blue and white. Now, if I was a, a Burnley fan or um, a Man United fan, then I, I probably wouldn't be sat here now. But because I supported Preston and the jockey was wearing blue and white silks, I put my £10 each way on Liz Nicargill Girl at 33 to 1. And, and really, the next 12, 12 minutes or so in that betting shop changed my life forever because uh, against all the odds, against all the form or anything, Liz Nicargill won really quite comfortably. Um, and my £10 each way as a young 18-year-old, first bet I've ever placed was suddenly worth about £500. And I still remember now that feeling that went round in my brain as that as that horse passed that line, and I realised you know that's what I was getting back. And you know the truth is, but for the first eighteen years of my life, I never gambled. For the next seventeen, there wasn't a day went by that I didn't. You know that's how easy it is to become a gambler. Now I wasn't a problem gambler straight away. You know I was what I would call as a recreational gambler. So a recreational gambler will be in control of three things: the, the time they're spending gambling, the money they're spending gambling, and how much of their brain space is taken up by th by the thoughts of gambling. If you're in control of all three of those, then gambling isn't an issue. It's a legal activity, and it's something that most people can enjoy. The worry we have is that more and more people can't stay in control of all three of those things. And as soon as you lose control of one of them, you generally lose control of the other two quite quickly. And that's what happened to me. You know, I left university moved back to, to Lancashire, where, where I'm from. Uh, and after a quick dabble with, with retail, I went into banking in, in 2001 as a financial advisor. And, and my salary trebled overnight. Um, I had a lot more disposable income. Uh, I got married in the same year. Um, and really what happened between 2001 and 2011 was, was a story of three worlds, completely compartmentalized from each other, completely separate. I didn't really mix them for, for, for reasons that will become clear. Um, but in terms of those three worlds, my career went from strength to strength. So I, I was working for um, Abbey National, which now most people will know as Santander. Um, and I, for five years, I was a really successful financial advisor, stroke wealth manager. In 2006, I became a regional, regional manager. In 2010, I became a divisional, divisional manager. Um, so the career was going great. Uh, in, during that time as well, uh, I got married in 2001. I had Connor in 2004. Rebecca in 2006 and Georgia in 2010. So the family again, you know, no health issues, everything looked great. And I think if you looked in from the outside, the world of Paul Buck would have been quite an enviable one. Really successful financial career, great family, no health issues, what could possibly be going wrong? Um, and as you can probably guess, the third world was a gambling world. And 
Uh, during the course of that decade, I transacted £4.8 million across 93 separate betting accounts, lost £1.3 million, uh, transacted over 16,000 online bets alone, let alone, let alone how many um, across um, you know bookies and, and going to the races and stuff like that. I owned two racehorses, I owned 16 greyhounds. It was a world that was completely out of control and also completely hidden from anybody that knew me. Um, and of the £1.3 million I lost, it, the, the, the truth of the fact was that half a million pounds of it was my employers, was, was Santander's. And, and what had happened with me is the money had run out in 2006. And as a, as a pathological gambler, which is the other end of the spectrum from a recreational gambler, um, you just don't care where the money comes from. You just have to place that next bet. It's an addiction, it's an illness. And for me, the money had run out and, 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 and I found any way that I could to, to do it. And for me, that was my employer. Uh, we do a lot of work in prisons now, as I said before, and um, you know a lot of people will 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 start selling drugs to deal with gambling debts. Other people will will murder people to pay gambling debts. Other people will ram post offices. For me, my employer was a was a was a financial advisor, was a, a financial company, and I found a way of getting the money from their account into my account. And um, and and yeah, the truth is, I, I handed myself in in, in December two thousand eleven um, after a whole epiphany moment. Uh, was on bail for six months and ended up in prison for, well, I was sentenced to two years, eight months and, and served 11 and a half months. So I then had a decision to make. Do you go out and work on something completely unrelated and, 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 and support your family, etc., Or do you go out and actually make a difference in this field? Um, and I made that decision quite quickly that I had quite a unique combination of um, the experiences of a pathological gambling disorder for at least 10 years in addition to um, most of the negative effects that come come off the back of it, like we mentioned before. So I knew that I had a piece of work that I needed to do. Um, as I looked at the evidence and did all the reading, etc., it soon became clear that, yeah, this is a massive social issue that's getting bigger, and obviously the evidence is growing year by year now. Uh, and I knew there was, there, was, there was work to be done. So my initial thought was to start up a charity, you know, and but, but a lot of the businesses we worked with didn't want to deal with a charity, so, so we set it up as a commercially sustainable um, socially driven business, which is what Epic now is um, three years later, four years later. I mean, I know I've heard the story before, but it's still an, it's quite an incredible story. And in all this time, you, you, you know, owned all those horses and everything, and, and your wife and your family just had, had absolutely no clue about... No, my, kid, my kids were obviously very young. Um, I mean, even in 2011, when, when the sort of rock bottom came, you know, they're only seven, five and one. So I often quite thankful that it happened when it did rather than now, because I think it would be you know a, a much more difficult situation to deal with. Not that it wasn't before, but no. In, in answer to your question, my wife knew that that I like to flutter, but then most of the adult population do. Seventy six percent of of the UK population gamble to some sort. She she had no idea at all that it was anything like the extent that it was, and I think that's where it differs. I mean, I never belittle any of the other addictions because addictions to alcohol, addictions to drugs, addiction to prescription drugs, even cigarettes, sex, shopping, they're all serious addictions in their own way. Um, for me though, for gambling, you know, there's only so much with drugs that you can put up your nose or, or inject in your arm without, without you start changing colour and your organs fail. There's only so much you can drink before you start changing colour. For gambling, you can keep it very hidden. And there are, there are a lot of symptoms that if you know what to look for, you can, you can identify them but they are also symptoms that can be put down to other things. So you generally put a lot of weight on you, you become fidgety, your 
personality becomes a lot more quiet. You're not interested in things that you were interested in before. Depression usually kicks in or at least anxiety or stress at some stage. So, but they're all things you can put down to work pressure. And I think that's what my, my family did. That, that as my personality changed, as my appearance dwined and, and, and waned and so on, it was a case of, oh, he's under a lot of pressure at work. He's, he's flying through this financial career. Um, you know, I wish he'd put it down sometimes, but the reality was that it probably wasn't the, the, the career at all. It was the, it was the sort of addiction or disorder kicking in, as, as they call it now. And, you know, you, you obviously had that time to spend in, in prison. Um, was that when you started really mulling over the idea of coming out and starting the charity or the social enterprise as it was at the time? I mean, it yeah. obviously would have been a good time yeah. for reflection. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I mean, you're quite right. I mean, I mean, there was, there was talk, even though it was a lot of money, there was talk that the, 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 the sentence would be suspended and you would serve it in the community. I never really felt that because it was such a large amount of money. I think that, that was what the issue was. Um, and um, I often think what would have happened if, if, if I hadn't gone to prison that day. Um, and I think the reality was is that Epic wouldn't have happened if that hadn't. Because what it did, it allowed me to have almost a year of, of rebalancing. It, it gave me a chance to have kind of like my midlife crisis, if you like, where you can sort of think what's important, what's not, who's important, who's not. And what do you actually now want to do on release that is going to going to a fulfill your you as as far as your life's concerned because that's really important for a, a recovered gambler that you have something that gives you that buzz uh, but also what's going to make the maximum amount of difference to both other people individually and society as a whole and you know i was very fortunate in, in some ways people might sort of laugh at that you know not that fortunate but but i you know i worked in a library um teaching people to read doing things like dvd dads where 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 prisoners can, can, can do a DVD for their kids and send it home and, and, and help rebuild relationships that way. But it also allowed me to do a lot of business planning. So I was working in a library, so I had every business planning book going and, and so on like that. So it was, it was a case where, you know, June 13, when, 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 when you were released, you're like a coiled spring, you've come out, you've got your business plan, you know what you want to do, you've just got to find the financial support and, and so on to be able to put it into practice. And yeah, it was, it was definitely a time where I reflected and it was definitely a time that made me realise that money's not God. Um, I had to totally re-educate. It sounds daft because I was a, a you know really senior manager at one of Europe's biggest banks, but I had to completely re-educate myself on the meaning of money, and and the value of money because for for a decade it hadn't meant anything. So so yeah, it was it, it was a, it was a massive life change in sort of a couple of years. And um, as I said, when I came out, I was very clear what I wanted to do. I knew what I wanted to do, and it's funny. I read the the business plan that I put together in two thousand and twelve. I read it quite recently. And actually, what I came up with in 2012 isn't that different to what actually Epic is now. Um, it's where I wanted to work, education wasn't in it, but I knew that, that pretty much what we're doing now is what I needed to do to, to pay back to society and also to, to make sure that I did my, my little bit for, this, for this, this area. You know, your journey when you came out was, that, was, was getting support from Big Issue Invest and and the, the the corporate support that came attached to that from Barclays and Experian and, you know, and the University of Northampton. Um, and yet, actually, despite all of that support, what you have in place now is pretty close to, to, to what you had in 2012. So I suppose what I'm saying is, when we talk about social entrepreneurship, we always often talk about the barriers that exist. You know, you, you had this support and to overcome some of the barriers that do exist, but it didn't. It doesn't seem that it necessarily. You know, how transformational was that that support then? If 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 you know what what you originally planned when you're in prison is effectively still what you're doing now good question but it, but in answer in answer to your question it was hugely important 
Um, so when I say the business is where, where I want it to be, that's fine, you know, comparing sort of A to B, if you like, but actually to get from A to B is where that help was needed. So in terms of, you're quite right, there was two lots of support really. One was unlimited initially, uh, which is just some social funding. Um, and, and they gave me sort of 25 grand across um, quite quickly actually upon release, but allowed me to do a pilot project of, of why gambling was a problem for companies and, and what they would engage in. The big issue invest was a, a really massive part of it because yeah, they gave some funding, but it really it was around the support, as you said, with the University of Northampton, who we're, we're really happy to still be working with, and also uh, with Barclays, um, mainly Barclays. Experian a little bit, but mainly Barclays. And, and what they did is they really professionalised it. So people people have this idea that social entrepreneurship and, and social enterprises are just these little woolly things which are really nice, and everyone does a little rah-rah in the morning and, and so on. But, you know... I can tell you from experience, they are absolutely under just as much brutal, you know, observation as any other business that goes. Uh, just because they're socially driven doesn't mean that they're not treated as businesses. And what I said to to the guy at uh, at Barclays, who's my main mentor, was, I want you to treat me like you would treat any other business, because he only deals with twenty five million plus turnover businesses, etc. And he is brutal. And I said, I want you to treat me exactly the same way because I want to maximise the amount of impact that I'm making. Not for me now, it's not all about making millions of pounds. You know, it's not a case of, oh, let's cash in on what, on what happened. Um, I want Epic to grow and be as big as it possibly can and successfully commercially so that you can maximize the social impact that you make. Because the, 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 the whole model of it is the more people I, more money we make, the more people we've helped. And the more money we make, the more social causes we will contribute to. So it's got a really nice kind of, I think we call it a lockstep model uh, that works. Um, but you know, literally, I went for the first meeting with with Barclays, and, and he just basically ripped my business plan to shreds. Um, from literally from name downwards, so we were called initially Epic Problem Gambling Consultancy. Um, I think it was when I first 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 met yourself. It was. Um, it was. And the first thing he said within five minutes of the meeting is, "You are not going to be able to work in financial services industry called Epic Problem Gambling Consultancy." Because there's not a there's not a financial institute in the world who will want to be seen to be working with a problem gambling consultancy. Because what will investors think? What will customers think? So within five minutes, ten minutes of that meeting, Epic Risk Management was born, um, and we do fundamentally the same. But it's amazing how much interest you get as a risk management company rather than a problem gambling consultancy. Again, stigma um, attached to it. So so yeah, he, he he we we literally rewrote the whole thing, and over a period of fifteen months, and that's still ongoing now. He has really professionalised the whole thing. So the, the truth is, without that support from Big Issue Invest, the University of Northampton, Unlimited, etc., you know, A and B might be very similar from business plan to where we are now, but we would never have got to B without it. Yeah. So that it's at that strategic level, it's very similar, but it's all of the it's all of that sort of micro level stuff that's just so crucial to, to driving the business forward. Yeah, I think I think there's two things. I think one is there will be a lot of obstacles. There is a lot of obstacles to social enterprise. Um, but there's also solutions to all those obstacles if you look in the right places and get the right support, and I think that is, um, I think, I think that's a really important part of it. And the second thing I just wanted to stress again is that just because it's a social enterprise doesn't mean it's any any run any less as a business. You know, they have to be run as a business or they will not survive because, you know, social enterprises still have these perceptions that they're not proper businesses. So a lot of suppliers or a lot of a lot of buyers won't deal with them, uh, which is crazy. But it is it, is still the perception. So you've almost got to work harder for your business than 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 a, a normal business, if you want to call it that. I mean, that's always an inter- an area that I find interesting as well. In that, when you talk about stigma with 
with, with gambling, but actually I think sometimes, particularly with the organisations that you're working with, you know, big corporates or organisations that behave like corporates, such as sports clubs, um, that that being a social business could also almost be a stigma itself. What kind of barriers as a, not just as a social business, but as a small startup company, did you face in trying to get into these big institutions on a subject area that they're very nervous about, about talking about? Yeah, I think, I think there, there is that. I think, I think big companies and big organisations and established sectors who are worried about media and things like that, they will generally go for established companies, big companies. So, a good example of that would be maybe the financial services. If they were if they were dealing with a, a big incident, they would go to one of the big four accountants to deal with it, and pay a huge amount of money per day to do it. Um, when we when we started out, we were charging about twenty five times less than the big four would per day, um, and that was probably because we were trying to establish ourselves. Probably because there was a bit of a a, a self esteem issue that you just talked about. Are we good enough to work with these people? Um, and so on and we we another thing with the support we got we had an afternoon with, with something called Boston Consulting Group who are a very successful consulting group globally and they said to me there's, there's two things that you're doing wrong and it's all about confidence in your business because at the moment you're hamstringing it so the first thing is you're going bottom up rather than top down so you don't understand you know what you're dealing with here is one of the biggest issues in the world right now let alone the UK um, and you're going in at a customer inquiry line and trying to expect to go up all the different layers till you eventually get to a decision maker who may be 20 layers up. So what you've got to do is you've got to have a, a, you know, grow a, ability in your business and, and, and confidence in your business and you go straight to a CEO or you go straight to a CRO and you say, this is one of your biggest issues. Who is it who I deal with it? And if they put it down a level, that's fine because the CEO has told them to do it, but you, you, your route to decision maker is a lot quicker. Um, and we did that from day from, from from literally the day after. He said the other thing is you can't underprice, so it's one of those tricky things. So you're your social enterprise, you know, you, you you're a startup. You're against the EYs and and Deloitte's of this world. You've just got out of prison. You've just set up this business up, and you're going in and 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 you know you're just happy that someone's going to talk to you, let alone you know pay you any money. Um, but what they said to me quite 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 brutally was was you way undercharging so what they'll do is they'll look at what you're charging they'll look at what EY are charging or whoever else it is and they'll say well they must be 25 times better we'll go with them so so they were the two big lessons that I learned quite early on from that from that afternoon with with, with Boston um, and we don't we don't go in and overcharge we certainly don't charge anything like they do but I think we do charge now um, a fee which is more commensurate with the with what we can provide I suppose your pricing structure, in a way, ties into your brand, doesn't it? Because yeah. they're, you know, they're looking. If you're too cheap, then they're thinking there must be a reason that you're so cheap, yeah. and so they avoid it. You know, I suppose like you would buy any any product yeah. um, as a consumer. The last area we like to talk about, and we we, we ask every uh, social entrepreneur this, and it's a little bit tongue in cheek, but but the idea behind it is to really focus on exactly what you've been saying. You know, so is social enterprise, you know, purely social? Is it a business? Is it a hybrid of the two? In your mind, can a social can a social entrepreneur drive a Lamborghini? Okay, good question. Um, simple answer for me is absolutely why not? They can drive whatever they want. Um, I think what you might find is a social entrepreneur wouldn't particularly want to drive a Lamborghini as much as as a as a as a, a you know I keep calling them a normal business person, and I don't mean to say that because it's totally against what I mean. What what I I, I think a social entrepreneur is probably just as business minded and just as business like and likes just as much likes rewards 
it might not just all be monetary awards. I think a social entrepreneur, from my experience, and my difference in mindset now, would, would gain other rewards than just the Lamborghini or the, the, the desert island or the or the mansion in, in, in Barbados. I know of some social entrepreneurs who still have got that, and I don't think there's any harm in that at all. It just means that they have gained those by actually making a huge social impact at the same time. But I think what you would generally find, the mindset is different. So if you're in it brutally just to make money and to get the Lamborghini and to get the house and to get the island and, and everything else, you're probably not as bothered about what happens in, in, in terms of getting there, the journey. Whereas a social entrepreneur will be more interested in the actual journey itself. And if those things happen, great, but um, it wouldn't be your primary motivator. So it's a much more internal reward structure as a social entrepreneur rather than those external things that that we might hold up in society. I think so. I think that might be that might be that might be a generalization and might not fit into every example. But I think in 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 short, in general, I think yeah, for the social entrepreneur, it's more about the journey, and the rewards will take care of itself. I think for the for the big business entrepreneur, if you like, who's just purely money motivated, it's about the destination rather than the journey together. You you absolutely do, yeah, and and you know I'll be honest these days it, the money side of it I leave to other people. So you know we have a, a bookkeeper who comes in once twice a month now actually who feeds straight into an account who feeds straight into some of my directors who are all business valuers and, and accountants, and 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 you know I get a hard time sometimes saying oh we could have got more money there, but but I try and base everything upon what is going to have the most impact, and sometimes that won't be you know the best commercial revenue angle i mean we're, we're doing okay we are commercially sustainable you know we're doing we're doing quite well but there is times when i could have made more money if i'd made a different decision but we wouldn't have made such a big impact so a typical example is a criminal justice um tender that we're working on at the moment you know we've got we've got the opportunities to get more money in from another source as part of that in the middle of this one but it would be more around you know results driven and data driven and stuff like that at the moment we are putting a program together called the compass program which is actually helping lads who are in prison it's helping prison officers understand it it's helping probation officers it's helping families and we are putting it together in a way where we can prove sustainability so we can go across the whole prison estate in in, in a year's time or two years time so that the whole data driven thing would have brought more money into the business but it wouldn't have allowed us to prove the concept and have have greater uh, value all round uh, in the long term, so we, we've not done that. So this that's just a one one example. Um, so yeah, we I leave the money side of it to to other people now. No, that's great. I mean, look, there you go, listeners. Do you agree with Paul's take? A social entrepreneur can drive a Lamborghini, but then why would you want to? Think of the impact that you could drive with the the, the cost of that Lamborghini. Feel free to let us know uh, your thoughts on this via our Twitter feed at Institute SII and at our LinkedIn page www.instituteforsocialinnovationandimpact. .co.uk. Join us after the break where we'll be talking about the role of sport in driving community change and social impact. Welcome back to Talking Impact. Each podcast we explore a topical issue related to the third sector and our guest social entrepreneurs work. This show's theme is therefore centred on gambling in sport and sport's wider role in society. Paul, two things spring to mind here for me really. The first one is obviously gambling in sport and the, and the news that's been around John Hartson this week, the strife that it caused to him and his family and actually the 
to his life in general, really, his, his health. Uh, and second is One Matters, new drive for his charity, um, Common Goal. He's asking Premiership footballers to donate 1% of their wages um, to, that, to that charity. To date, no Premier League footballers have signed up, but there's eight footballers internationally that have. Um, so I thought we could talk about these two areas because it really is a, it's a good look at both gambling in sport and sport's role in, in, in driving social impact and, and community cohesion itself. So for, first, let's explore gambling in sport. You know, obviously you're working with rugby, cricket, football, um, with jockeys. We heard about that, that all earlier. How big a problem do you think it actually is in high-level sports? Okay, I, th- I think there's two very distinct areas of this. One is the, the gambling-related harm and potential gambling-related harm that, that top professional athletes are suffering themselves. I think there is the also, there's also the issue of the normalisation of gambling and sport for, for the watching audience and watching people. So I'll, I'll deal with both separately if, if, if that's okay. So we've worked quite extensively um, across a number of different sports. We, 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 we conducted what's probably the largest, most penetrative and comprehensive gambling education awareness programme ever done in world sport with the RFU, the, the Aviva Premiership and the, and the Rugby Players Association. Uh, which covered 647 professional players in the Aviva Premiership, and um, you know, I don't. I think it was it was a it was a very brave move by the by the RPA to do that within Rugby Union, um, and I think it was what, what's what's impressed me a lot with the governing bodies of sports, particularly cricket and rugby, is that they have got a genuine interest in the welfare of the players. It's not just a case of we want to get as much performance out of them as possible, although obviously if they're addiction free or or, or, or welfare. Um, you know, well upon welfare that will happen, but but there there is a genuine interest in the players, and I think the players enjoyed it. We certainly enjoyed doing it as well, and there were some really interesting findings that came up that that these guys were at the top of their game. They're, they're literally elite professional sports people. It's the same with cricket as well. I'm, I'm football, um, and yet they've never been educated about this topic. You know, they've had stuff about betting integrity, so match fixing and stuff like that. They've had stuff around concussion, anti doping. Um, you know the use of illegal substances and, and, and performance enhancing sports um, all kinds of mental strategies and sports psychologists and how to sleep properly and, and everything else but even though this is such a massive massive issue they had not been educated around this and, and some of these guys were, were 30 years old yes yeah, some of them were 16 17 as well but even at, across the across the spectrum of ages this is the first time um, that it had any kind of education and awareness uh, and I, I found that I found that quite shocking. I, mean, I knew obviously it wasn't happening in schools, and, and and still isn't to a large degree. It's not part of a PSHE curriculum. But these guys are competitive. They have time on the hands. They're earning a lot of money sometimes, uh, or a lot of the time now as as as, as sports professionalised more and more. And TV rights came in, so they've got all the cocktails to be potentially problem gamblers and suffer gambling harm. But they've never been educated. They've never been treated seriously. Um, and, and thankfully that started to happen now as you've heard across across a number of different sports so in answer to your question yes I think there is a problem with gambling within sport I think people have always known there was a problem with gambling within sport they just haven't known what to do with it and hopefully we've helped to f- sort of fill that hole if you like and do it in a very impactful way that, that will, will encourage players to come out and talk about it very much in the same way as they do about mental health now 
depression, stress, anxiety, which I know again has come out in in, in the press. Uh, we were at a conference with John Hartson only a couple of weeks ago in, in, in Malta talking about responsible gambling and, and John speaks very, very well about about uh, the issues that he felt and there was a recent one with Kyle Lafferty up in Scotland as well and there's some other high high profile ones. So the more these respected and, and, and looked up to players come out and talk about it, the more that your general public will also talk about it. So so I'm, I'm all for it. And when people like John Hartson talk about this, I mean... What kind of support do they think needs to be in place to help players, and 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 what kind of you know how do you go in and support that? Because I can imagine it's not always an, an easy environment to go into, a, not specifically into the changing room, but metaphorically, you know, to talk about these issues with players who might not who might not be that open to being supported in the in the first instance. We we we've been really surprised. We 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 were warned when we went in and started doing the rugby sessions, and and to a lesser degree the cricket ones, but we were warned that 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 you know. You, you'll hold you'll struggle to hold the attention more than 20 minutes they won't want to listen it might be a case where um you know who are you to tell us what to do with our money kind of thing and obviously the team thing one starts and, and a few others would but i have to say i didn't find that at all in any of the sessions um so we did 17 sessions and covering over 600 600 odd players um and you know the guys are actually really intelligent guys you know they want the the, the they're worried about selection. They're worried about their careers. They're worried about their families. They're worried about you know playing internationally, um, and they, I think there's a generally a really really wide recognition that gambling is a massive issue, and they were just really interested. And the fact that we could go in and tell a really hard hitting personal story, not just mine. We've got a couple of other guys as well. One ex uh, sort of honour winner in the army, one ex rugby player, etc. So you can go in and tell a story. You actually gain the credibility and the authenticity that oh this guy knows what he's talking about. He's lived it. He's been there. Um, and then they will listen to the education off the back of it. And our sessions were often ended up being an hour and a half because the Q and A's were so uh, were so long afterwards, you know. And then we had we had quite a lot of um, follow ups as well within both sports, and we continue to support a few of the players as well. So so I think generally, you know, the players themselves have been really really open to it, and 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 it's actually opened a lot of their eyes, and hopefully we prevented a lot of those players getting to the edge of a cliff as well, like which is what the the whole thing's about. I know you said that you know some of the players that you're engaging with they're 30 and they've never had any of this support before. But I know that you also do a lot of work with young sports people, you know, young footballers. I think that ties back to the early intervention theme that you were talking about earlier. I mean, perhaps you could just talk us through some of the work that you're doing um, with young sports people and and how you think that helps to mitigate the risk factors for the careers they're going to have. Yeah, I, I think I think it's incredibly important. So so within Chelsea and, and a couple of the other clubs we. We, we work literally from under 14s right through to under 23s, which is what the juniors are, and then obviously going to the seniors. Um, and those 14, 15, 16, 17-year-olds are, 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 if not as important, more important. Because, as I said, they're, they're a tech-savvy generation. They're, they're brought up, they've got more money than most kids would, would ever dream of having. They've got the best mobile phones, they've got the best laptops, they've got, they live with house parents generally if it's, if it's a big premiership team. Um, and these guys have got a lot of time on their hands and a lot of money and not really the the education or the maturity to be able to deal with those amounts of money and that amount of time and the adulation of playing for 
Premiership champions or or, or, or or whatever. So so the education is important. So with the, with the PCA, the Professional Cricketers Association, we do the Rookie Elite Academy at Edgebaston every every year, where every new new first year professional comes together at Edgebaston. There's usually about forty of them, and we give them we give them a, a session about the, not just about gambling, but also about alcohol and drugs and and past players talk and stuff like that. Similar with the rugby, we go to rugby school or Lillyshall every every year and, and speak to all the new first year professionals and for me these are the most important people to see because if you let these guys go into a changing room where there is a gambling culture historically or, or currently uh, or you just allow them to to sign that first contract and a lot of money and then go and start playing professional sport again with adulation time a lot of traveling etc then then before you know it they will 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 be sucked into the culture without being given the education and the awareness training to allow them to actually make decisions for themselves. What I, what I like to think is that they go in now much more informed. And actually, I've, I've, not, I've heard of instances where it's been reported back to me where, where young professionals have gone in and actually been educating the senior professionals. Oh, you shouldn't do that. You know, we've not seen this. And so on. And that, 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 that's great, you know, because what will happen then is the senior professionals' careers will come to an end in five, six, seven years' time. And actually, if the top age groups have been informed from from the age of seventeen, eighteen onwards, then you should see a, a much a much lesser prevalence. Oh, so, so it's like the ripple effect of social impact, isn't it? That you know, your beneficiaries are effectively going out there and uh, and repeat, you know, repeating the work that that you're doing. So yeah. it's it's really important that because. Um, Every so, I think a lot of the social entrepreneurs that I've dealt with, and I'm sure the ones that you've dealt with, you want to, you, your natural instinct is you want to make as much difference as, as quickly as you can. And I think one thing you've got to accept, particularly me, I've got a very compulsive personality, is that you want to change things overnight and you don't understand why you can't and, and whatever. And you've just got to understand that this could take months and, and or years before it, it actually the full effect is, is hit. But you keep chipping away, you keep doing the right things, you keep having the right you know, beneficiaries and, and, and stakeholders involved in the business and you will eventually start making it making a difference, which we're starting to see now. Okay, great. Let's go on to talk about the One Matters charity that's been in the news then. Um, and obviously this takes us away from gambling, but I think it's still important. It, 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 it talks about the type of society that we'd like to see and how we feel we can drive impact within it. Um, the take-up has obviously so far been very poor. Um, and I don't say this to... to to bash professional footballers because there's many of them that are doing fantastic charitable work and donating money elsewhere some of it we know about some of it we probably don't so they don't necessarily need to engage with 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 what one matters asking them to do but nevertheless i mean to have had no premier league footballers as of yet two months in um sign up to it is a little surprising um and do you do you feel this is a reflection in society as a whole? I mean, you know, what's your take on on the whole uh, movement that that One Matters trying to drive here? I, I think it's an interesting one. Uh, I think it's very well intentioned. I don't know. I don't know One Matter. Um, I know a couple of his teammates, um, but um, I think you're right in what you said first and foremost. Is that the general public and, and, and whatever will will don't understand the true extent of what these professional guys do. So. It's a completely different world. It's a completely, it's a complete world away from normal reality. I mean, these guys certainly in the Premiership and the top guys, but you're you're referring to there at United and, and, and so on. It, it's completely devoid of any kind of normal reality, and the players don't make a lot of decisions for themselves. So they all have financial advisors, 
they all have premier advisors they all have agents who who advise everybody around them um, and so on so in terms of money they, they make very few decisions for themselves now you do see a lot some of them splashing out on different things and of course they can if they want to but but the decisions around things like that wouldn't be done um i know a number of players who do an awful lot for charity but you would not know it if you didn't know them so i think another thing with, with players and this might be again this bit of a sweeping generalization is they don't like being told what to do um and the fact that that that, that one matters come out and and almost said, look, we all should be doing this, would be the, the, the last way of getting them to do it. I do know of other movements quite similar to this, uh, usually club specific, where one of the players has gone around the changing room and said, look, you know, this charity is close to my heart, can we do something to support it? And every single one of them has done it. But I don't think, as a, as a general mentality of, of a Premiership footballer, they like being told in a public arena what to do. So, so, so I'm not saying that's the, that is the reason. I don't know the reason uh, in in such, but, but um, I do think more of them do do more than we we we, we kind of let on. I mean, maybe we can actually tie it back then to what we were talking about earlier. In that, you when you originally came out um, to set set up Epic, you were going to set it up as a as a charity, and actually realised quite quickly that 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 wasn't the best approach because companies wouldn't want to engage with a charity. Do you think any of this comes down to that societal perception we have of charities versus something like a social entrepreneur or social enterprise or business per se? I do, yeah. And I do think that the middle space is quite confusing to a lot of companies and to a lot of people. So so a lot of companies, and I won't say who it was, but when I was setting up, we set up as a sole, sole, sole trader. And um, they, they said, you know, what, what's your legal entity? And I said, well, I'm a sole trader, but obviously we're going to become a charity. Oh, I can't deal with either of those. Right. Okay. Why? Why is that? Well, you need a VAT number. You need to be a, a limited company. You need to be an established company, and all this kind of thing. Um, and it it kind of didn't happen once. That happened two or three times. Uh, and I was quite surprised at that and quite shocked at it. But I do think there is this this mentality, not just in big business, but also more widely, that charities and social social enterprises aren't proper businesses. They're not credible. Um, and I think that's a big thing that you've got to change. Now, when when I became a limited company it, we had uh, a lot of social things written into our articles about what we will contribute to good causes and and so on um but we we do now pride ourselves and it's in our annual report and everything that that we are a commercially sustainable but socially driven business and that is a new concept people don't get it sometimes and we have to explain it it, it always used to be you're either a charity or a social enterprise or you're a proper business and that was always the mentality you can't be you can't be sat on the fence if you like, but what I'm saying is that you can run a socially driven business as a proper commercially sustainable business, and 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 and, and with all the same safeguards and all the same um, regulatory things and everything else, and, and and have just as much success with it. You're just doing a lot of good while you do it. And I think the message is getting across, but it, you know it's not again it's not an overnight thing. It's yeah it's it's absolutely it's about a more a more socially responsible capitalism I suppose you could argue more. A more socially responsible economy might be might be a better phrase, but I totally understand what you're talking about the middle ground. I mean, I've been researching in this area for ten years, and I'm pretty sure a lot of my friends and family couldn't really tell you what it is that I do because it is just a that hybrid, that sort of hybridity of it just kind of is confusing, I, I suppose. What about in terms of actual um, clubs themselves? I mean, I know lots of clubs actually do have a lot of charitable and uh, and social entrepreneurial initiatives. And they are really corporate entities themselves. I mean, huge, huge organisations with huge turnover. 
Um, yeah, perhaps, perhaps actually, this should shouldn't be been driven by people like one matter. It should be been driven by the Premier League or the clubs or the, those involved. Um, you're you're right. I think I think it's a really really interesting dynamic. More so in football because obviously football and its um, broadcasting rights are going bananas, uh, particularly across the Middle East and across the the different TV contracts and and, and stuff like that. And um, again, it's one of those things, isn't it? I mean, when 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 a player signs a contract, you know signing the contract to actually play is only really part of it the much more wider element which is why you don't really see anything start and finish on transfer deadline day anymore it's all about image rights it's all about what control the club has over the player's name and uh, what he wears and what he's allowed to wear and what he says and what he's allowed to say and, and, and all this kind of thing there's so much more complexity to it now and I think I think as a club and most clubs do have some kind of foundation now I know certainly Man United do and and a couple of us said he would have a foundation that supports certain charities. Um, but again, I think if a if a club said to a player, "You have to support this charity," that whole mentality of "I'm not doing what I'm," you know, that's not in my contract. Why should I do that? You know, kind of thing would would come in. Um, so I think it's a difficult thing to do. I think I think the Premier League. Um, I think the Premier League encourages certain things, uh, but I think you know the 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 the. the the, the, the chat it gets back from the clubs is that look you know give us our share we'll then decide what we're going to do with it kind of thing you know and I might be being unfair there but but each club is now such a massive business you know I mean literally you come bottom of the premiership you get 168 million I think is it this 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 year that's come bottom of the premiership so it's such a massive business you know it, the, 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 they're just getting bigger and bigger and I think they do leave it to the, the individual players to decide what they're going to support or not and sport always has been such an arena for, for for potentially driving social change, hasn't it? I mean, you think back to the international boycotts of South Africa, or we, even as we, we see in the NFL now, whether people like it or not, but players not standing for the anthem and, and, and sitting to make a point. Um, so, so so sport does have a role in, in, in raising up, you know, because it's such a big arena, you know, it has such PR value in terms of getting a message across. It, it can have a place in, in driving change in, in society. Yeah, it's huge, and, and we you know we do what I like to think five really um, notable sectors that we work across, like we talked about before. So we've got the, the financial services, the army, the criminal justice, the the sport and the education. But we had we had something like thirty seven media appearances last year, and thirty three or thirty four of them were sport. Sport is what people are interested in. So this is why it's such a massive influencer. So you know, I hate you know, hate to say it, I guess, but but for for a lot of people, sport is their religion, so it's what they listen to, and I think that is a massive cultural change as well. So if if a player is doing this, kids will try and copy it. You know, if if a player says this, they'll listen to that instead of what the mum and dad or the teacher says, or something like that. You know, they are massive, massive influencers, uh, and I won't lie, that's part of the reason why Epic tried to become involved with it, and 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 and, and still are. Um, but I think that become what comes with that is responsibility. So these guys are running around all day, every day with with different betting companies. Going back to gambling just for a moment, they're running around with betting companies all all around there. Some of them are endorsing betting uh, activities on on different things. Um, and and you know I think they've just got to be aware of the responsibilities. And, and I don't actually think they understand how powerful they are. So somebody in the club has got to understand that, or somebody in the Premier League, or or, or the RFU or the, or, the, or the ECB have got to understand that and make sure that people dealt with I mean there's, there's been a high profile with cricket obviously with Ben Stokes recently as well so people have just got to understand that, that how they behave is watched through such close scrutiny now with social media etc 
they had that being a professional sportsman or athlete comes with responsibility yeah so there you go with the great power comes great responsibility i think it's a spider-man is it or is it spider-man quote or something i think yeah it's a uh, giveaway my old comic comic book interest but um yep Paul Book from Epic Risk Management, thank you so much for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you. My name is Richard Hazenberg. This is Talking Impact. Please join us uh, for the next show in two months' time. Thanks for listening to the Talking Impact podcast, brought to you by the Institute for Social Innovation and Impact. If you have any questions about the content discussed in this podcast, please email isii at northampton.ac.uk. For more information on the Institute's work, visit northampton.ac.uk forward slash research. You've been listening to a Jump Media Group production. Talk to us at wejumphire.co.uk.